You may be seated. I invite you now to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. And today we're going to be looking at the end of the chapter. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 32. We're coming to the end of our study. You say, but we're not to the end of the book of Genesis. I know that. We're looking at Genesis in three different volumes. We're going to take a break in between. So starting next week, we're we're going to um, we're we're going to look at some passages for Christmas throughout uh, the month of December, and then uh, we will uh, come back to another study. But our first volume of study in Genesis has been Genesis chapters one through eleven. I hope you have been blessed, and I hope you have been challenged by what we have studied in these, in these chapters so far. And if you haven't been a part of that study, I'd encourage you to go uh, check out our website and, and look at uh, the, uh, the sermons that we've covered, the passages that we've covered to this point. These chapters are foundational chapters because they reveal to us the origin of the earth, the origin of everything in it. There is no other record of where all of this came from. We look to the Word of God and to the Word of God alone. These chapters teach us God's perspective. They give us God's mind on the world that He has created. And they help us to form a correct and an accurate and a biblical worldview. We've talked about the importance of that to this point. Central to to who we are and to how we behave in this world, and to what our lives look like, and how we, how we act. Central to all of that is our view of the world. The turmoil, the chaos, the conflict that is ever-present in the world today is honestly nothing less than a, world, a war of worldviews. And that's becoming more and more clear with every news cycle, isn't it? And if we're going to truly understand the world in which we live, if we're going to truly understand and make any kind of sense of what is going on in the world today, and if we are going to have any understanding of what is right and what is wrong, and yes, there is a right and there is a wrong, and if we're going to have any understanding of how to live, we must look at this world from a biblical worldview. Otherwise, we won't understand it. The world won't make sense. And any attempt that we make at fixing the problems of this world won't have any effect. In fact, we'll often make it worse. With a biblical worldview, with a correct view of mankind and the world from God's perspective, we can find understanding and hope. Now, as I've said all along, Central to any worldview are several questions. We're going to have a biblical worldview. We need to ask several important questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? What is truth and reality? How is this world supposed to function? 
What is wrong with the world? And how is it supposed to be made right? We need to ask all those questions in order to form a worldview. And the answer to those questions, and more like them, will determine how we think, how we live, what we do with our lives, how we treat others, and where we will spend eternity. But if we're going to answer those questions in any meaningful way, we can't just make up the answers. We can't just decide what we want the answer to be and declare that's the truth. We have to look at the truth that has been revealed in God's Word. And behind those questions are some even more foundational, essential questions that we have to ask. Who is God? What is He like? What has He said? And why does it matter? Those questions drive us to the basic acknowledgement that God exists. If we go wrong there, we're already going to mess it all up. That drives us to the truth that God exists and that we are accountable to Him and that He has told us what we need to know. And so we submit ourselves to God. We look to His Word. We look to the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient Word of God for our direction. And from there, we find the instruction and the revelation we need for all of our other questions. That doesn't mean that we have the answer to every question we can possibly think of. But that means we have the answer to every question we need in order to form a godly worldview and to live in a godly way in this world. If we do not accept and if we do not understand the worldview that is presented in these chapters, in Genesis 1-11 through and then beyond, then we will be left confused and deceived about God, about our own design and purpose, about the basics of right and wrong, about the true problem of mankind, and about the solution to that problem. And when we think about that, is it any wonder that there is so much confusion and deception around us in a society that has long ago wholeheartedly rejected God and His authority? Do you see the connection there with the declining commitment to the Word of God and the rising confusion and chaos morally in our world today? That has been the case throughout history. And so as we have studied chapters 1 through 11, we have seen a constant tension. We have seen a battle between a biblical worldview with God at the center and an unbiblical worldview with man at the center. That's the conflict that's going on throughout Genesis 1 through 11. A biblical worldview seeks to know God and to submit to His authority, and it experiences His blessing. That's the one side of the conflict. On the other side of the conflict is an unbiblical worldview that rejects God's authority and exalts man as sovereign and experiences God's curse and judgment. We see both of those sides throughout these introductory chapters to Genesis. We saw God's perfect creation of all things back in chapters 1 and 2. And we saw their perfect design. But then we saw the rejection of God's command and man's self-exalting rebellion in chapter 3. 
Then in chapters 4 and 5, we saw a contrast between the ungodly lineage of Cain and the godly line of Seth. One line growing deeper into sin, and that manifested itself in the most common ways of sexual perversion and growing violence. And then the other line remained devoted to God, and they were characterized by their worship of the one true God. But then mankind continues to degenerate in his sin, and we come to chapter 6 through 9, and we see the culmination of man's sinfulness. Mankind had become thoroughly corrupt, and so God completely wipes out the planet with a universal, catastrophic flood. And he only saves one man and his family, eight people in total, that he rescues from his judgment on the earth. Now, at that point, we might have expected that the conflict was over. He wiped the slate clean, right? And with Noah and his family, God starts everything over, and the conflict is over, a fresh start. But we learn very quickly that those who came through the flood brought their sin natures with them. And mankind is still thoroughly corrupt. And then in chapters 10 and 11, we see that all too familiar degeneration of man once again, this time culminating in the the account of Babel, where mankind not only rebels against God, but organizes in his rebellion against God. And yet all the while, as we go through these chapters, we are holding on to a thread. Sometimes it feels like just like we're just holding on by a hair, but, but we are holding on to this thread of hope. We are seeing little glimpses here and there along the way that God has not forgotten his promise that he made back in chapter 3, verse 15. His promise that a deliverer would come who would reverse the curse and save mankind from his sin. And now as we come to these closing verses of chapter 11, and to the end of this first section of Genesis, we have by now lost all hope in mankind to do the right thing, haven't we? We have learned that sin is a real problem, and it is not just out there. It's in here. It is deep within the heart of every man and every woman. But at the same time, these closing verses set the stage for a new level of good news that is about to come. Not good news of a new effort by man, but now good news of a faithful God who keeps his promises and saves his people. And beginning in chapter 12, God will make a covenant with one man, and he will promise that from his descendants would come blessing and salvation for all the world. So while the darkness of mankind continues to grow in a sinful and broken world, the hope of deliverance and salvation continues to rise as God's redemptive plan unfolds. And these closing verses then are at the same time a picture of darkness and a preparation for hope. So let's look at this text. You know by now I'm not going to skip over reading a genealogy. So let's look at Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 10. 
these are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Ru lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived three, uh, 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife, Milcah the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, and his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, that sounds like a bunch of uh, random detail, random detail, but there's a lot of important, there's a, there's a picture being painted there. There's a stage being set there. And as we go through this passage, I want us to see two aspects, a, a comparison or a, a conflict that is going on in this passage. We have on the one hand, growing darkness, and then on the other hand, we have rising hope. Growing darkness and rising hope. Now, I want us to notice, first of all, in this passage, the growing darkness. That's in verses 10 through 26. This is the straight-up genealogy portion of the text. We've come to yet another genealogy with yet another overview of the generations, but we should know by now that genealogies are important, that they are valuable, that they do contribute to the message of the text. This genealogy is a continuation of what was begun in chapter 5. But the focus here is a little bit different. You see, in chapter 5, there was a constant refrain. Do you remember it? Do you remember what every generation ended with in chapter 5? And he died. And he died. That was the focus of the genealogy in chapter 5. And the emphasis was on the reality of death 
and the decline of mankind. And the idea is implied here in chapter 11 that that truth, that reality still exists. But as we come into chapter 11, that focus shifts a little bit. Because here there is a, con- a constant repetition of the word lived. He lived this many years and had other sons and daughters, right? He lived this many years. And the emphasis here is on the fact that life is continuing on, that the story is moving towards some fulfillment, that this is what, ma- what life in this world is like now, and it is moving towards something. So in this genealogy, we see the continuing progress of the story that began in chapter 1. And as these opening chapters come to a conclusion, this genealogy is serving as a transition into another significant stage of the story beginning in chapter 12. So it's a transitional one. It reminds us of the effects of sin, and it turns our attention to the expectation of deliverance. So here's something to think about. In chapter 3, there was a promise made, right? And that promise that was made to the woman is that there would be a seed. What is a seed? It's a descendant. And so the promise that God makes of deliverance is tied to a deliverer who comes as a descendant. That's why genealogies are so important. So I want us to do a quick overview of verses 10 to 26. And I want to see how this genealogy does two things. It highlights the effects of sin and it highlights the expectation of deliverance. And if you see that, you'll also see that title, The Growing Darkness and the Rising Hope. We see both of it in this genealogy. These verses keep the effects of sin ever before us. And they do that in several ways. First of all, in verse 10, we learn that Shem fathered Arpachshad after, or two years after the flood. Two years after the flood. We already know we're post-flood, but here it's mentioned again. It's almost like the, the narrator, it's almost like God himself wants us to keep the flood in the back of our minds. It's a subtle reminder of the ultimate effect of sin and the fact that God had already poured out his judgment once on that sin. The flood changed everything about life on this earth, didn't it? All mankind ever since has lived under this new reality. I'm not a big fan of using the phrase the new normal in our current situation in the world. But if ever we could use the phrase new normal, it was in establishing life after the flood, because that's the way it's been ever since. The reminder that the flood, that the reminder of this flood keeps in our minds the fact that sin has devastated mankind and all creation. And then we find another picture of the effects of sin. Did you notice this one? In a much more noticeable detail, did you notice the the significantly declining lifespans throughout this genealogy? We were told in in chapter 9 that Noah lived 950 years. We're told here that Shem lived 600 years. And it goes downhill from there so that by verse 26, man's lifespan is pretty close to 120 years. And it's gone down ever since. 
There are any number of reasons for, for this. We can look at environmental reasons, genetic reasons, general health issues, and, and lifestyle. But the point is, this is the effect of sin in the world. Man is not evolving into something greater. Because of sin, we are actually devolving even as we advance technologically. We are having to do things by technology now that man didn't need technology for before. You want a case in point? Basic math. How many of you are comfortable with basic math? Some of you are. Some of you, you're like, yeah, not me. Yes, pull out that phone and use the calculator that's built in, right? <laughs> we have the game of life in our house. And when it comes to the end of the game and we have to figure out who's going to win, and we cash everything in, and we have to count the cash. That's our routine. It's, oh, we got to pull off the phone because, right? Here's the point. This is the effect of sin on mankind, and it has been through every generation. Degeneration, constant pattern of degenerating because of sin. And then there's another picture, another. Another point that this passage gives us that shows the effects of sin in the world, and that is that paganism is still prominent. We already studied the account of man's organized rebellion at, at Babel and that there was a religious aspect to that, that it was, it was a, a religious rebellion as well as a social rebellion from the Lord. But what was the fallout from Babel? Mankind was scattered all around the world, and he took his paganism with him. He took his sin nature with him everywhere he went. And so if you notice in this passage, paganism is prominent at the beginning and at the end of the genealogy. At the beginning, at Babel, and at the end, in the family of Terah. Paganism is still prominent. And so the point is this. As we trace the generations through this genealogy, I have no doubt that there are some in here who lived in those generations who truly knew the Lord, who, who sought the Lord, but they were the exception to the rule. That was not the general flow of mankind, just as it is not very much today either. That is the exception to the rule. This overview of the generations is another harsh reminder once again that death still reigns and that man's heart is still rebellious. That is a truth we have to understand before the good news of the gospel becomes good to us. We have to understand the bad news. And what we find here is an illustration of the crushing truth that the Apostle Paul writes about in Romans chapter 3, in those familiar verses when he says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. That is the painful truth of all mankind in their natural state. Those are the effects of sin. But, though this genealogy keeps in our minds, the bad news, it always keeps it before us. As I've mentioned already, this is not all about bad news. There is a positive tone to this genealogy as well. More positive than what we saw in chapter 5. In fact, in verses 10 through 26, there isn't 
any specific mention of death. It's implied, but it's not the focal point here. The focus here is on life and on the continuation of the growth of mankind, even in the face of the reality of death. That mankind is populating the earth. He is growing and spreading out. And so these verses also keep before us not just the effects of sin, but the expectation of deliverance. And there are several details that help us with that. First of all, there's the repeated phrase, and he had other sons and daughters. Each generation, he had this son, and then he had other sons and daughters. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean they only loved one, and so they only wanted to mention one? What does it mean to just throw a phrase like that in, he had other sons and daughters? It means this record is selective. I don't mean by that that there are gaps. I mean that these generations are picked and mentioned for a particular purpose. They're going somewhere. There's a purpose behind this. This genealogy is meant to set up something that is coming down the road to prepare us to see something new. And so with this genealogy, we are being led to the next phase of the story. And then there's the mention of Shem. That's important. You might remember back to chapter 9 when Noah makes this prophecy of God's promise that he will bless Shem and that Shem will be a, a blessing to the descendants of the other brothers as well. Shem kind of begins to take the prominent seat here, right? Now the genealogy focuses in on him and his descendants. Whereas in chapter 10, we're looking at all the nations of the world. Here, the focus is shifting in on one particular family line. And so we know that this story is going somewhere. God is preserving his promise, and he is doing it through one man and his family. He had done it already through Seth, right? He narrowed the focus to the line of Seth, and then he did it again through Noah. Now he's doing it again through Shem, and Shem's line is going to take us to Abraham, where it gets really specific. Another important name to notice in these verses is Eber. I mentioned that again back in chapter uh, 10, but here in verses 14 through 17, we, we find Eber again. And that's significant because his name is the word from which we get the word Hebrew. So there's a subtle hint of the establishment of a nation in the mention of Eber. And then another important name to notice is Eber's son Peleg in verses 16 through 19. He's significant. He was mentioned in chapter 10 as well, but in chapter 10, the focus was on his brother, Joktan. Now the focus is on Peleg. Why? Not just because it was in his days that Babel happened, but because it was from Peleg's line that Abraham is going to be born. And that's where this is all going. And all of this is preparing us to meet Abraham. And in the background of it all is the sinfulness of man and God's promise of a deliverer. And so we're seeing mankind become more and more corrupt. And we're crying out more and more, where is that deliverer you promised? And this is leading us to Abraham. And now we're naturally going to ask what? Could Abraham be the deliverer? And we'll find out very quickly he is not the deliverer. But he is a key player in the storyline as we move toward the revelation of that deliverer. And so as we look at another genealogy, another overview of the nations, we are once again reminded of the brokenness of creation 
and the sinfulness of mankind. We are reminded that that darkness continues to grow as mankind continues to decline. Sin is still real. Hearts are still depraved. But in and all, we get the glimpse, we get a sense that good news is coming. We are meant to gain some anticipation, some expectation of good news, of deliverance. And this passage from here to the end of the chapter is setting the stage for chapter 12 and beyond. And I know I keep mentioning chapter 12, and we're actually not going to come to chapter 12 yet. So I'm going to leave you hanging until we start volume 2 of Genesis, looking for that resolution and that new phase of the story in chapter 12. Darkness is growing. We see that in the sin and the paganism. But light is coming. And it is the same today. We're meant to remember when we come to a passage like this, even in the 21st century, that man is still sinful, that darkness still grows. But we are also meant to see that God is still doing his saving work. And he will complete it. So that brings us to verses 27 through 32, where against that backdrop of growing darkness, we begin to see the rising hope. The rising hope. At this point, the genealogy slows down significantly, almost to a crawl. And it zooms in, not just on one family line, but on one particular household. The household of a man named Terah. And by doing that, God is turning our attention to the immediate family of Abraham, who is the son of Terah. And from this line, as Scripture unfolds, God will set apart His special nation Israel, from whom would come the promised Deliverer, the curse reverser, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. That's where the big story is headed. But while all of that sounds like a wonderful story, oh look, the growing darkness, and then Abraham comes like a, like a bright shining light in the midst of the darkness, and all of that might be true, as we look at Terah and his family, we are faced with a serious problem. You know what it is? They're not godly people. They're lost. There is no one in this family who is seeking after God. The family that this passage highlights is lost. They are pagans. They are idol worshipers. And so it becomes clear as we consider where they are and what they're involved in, if God is going to do anything having to do with good news, it's going to have to come from Him. He's going to have to do something dramatic, something spectacular. Because again, we've lost our hope in mankind to do the right thing, right? It's going to have to be something only God can do. And so let's look at Terah and his family. And let's consider, first of all, the pagan roots. And then we'll consider the promised future. When we think of Abraham, we think of the patriarch, right? We think of the patriarch who fully obeyed God. We think of the man who was so steadfast in his faith that he was willing to put his own son on an altar and actually raise the knife until God stopped him. That's a man of faith, right? That's who we think of. And I think that's a good thing that we think of him in that light. But we must also remember where he came from. And we must remember who he was before God sovereignly called him. 
This family was a family of idol worshipers. We are told in verse 28 that they lived in Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur was a city that was in the same vicinity of Babel in Mesopotamia, and it was a primary, prominent location and center of pagan idol worship, specifically of the moon god. The formalized idolatry of Babel had carried on, and this city was steeped in it. And on top of that, we're told of another city in verse 31 that when they came to Haran, they settled there. Haran was also a center of pagan worship, a prominent city of pagan worship. And that is likely why Terah decided to stop there and settle there instead of going on to Canaan like they had set out to do. And so the point here is to notice that this family is willing participants in the culture of their city. They were steeped in paganism. And we see that, we see some of that also in the names. I'm not going to go through every name, but some of the names listed here are specifically pagan-related. Terah. His name comes from the word Yareah, which is pointing to a pagan deity having to do with the moon and the moon god. Sarai. Her name means princess, and we might think that's pretty innocent, right? But in a pagan culture like that, it's a reference to the princess of heaven. And the other wife that's mentioned, Milka, her name means queen. Same idea, right? So, and, and we could look at some of the other ones too and really do an analysis of this, but right in that day, names weren't picked just for the sound of them like they are in our day, right? We don't... They, didn't, they weren't, didn't care about alliterating all their kids' names and picking out nice-sounding ones and all that. And um, Certainly, they didn't call them by their middle names, which a lot of people like to do today. No, the names had significance. They reflected something about the values and the culture of the family, and that's what's going on here. Now, the point of all of this is for us to see that none of them were seeking after God. They were going right along with the rest of the sinful world. And once again, it sets the backdrop of sinful darkness in the world because of sin and man's rebellion against God. And it reinforces that important point that we already saw in Romans 3. No one seeks after God. In and of himself, no one seeks after God. If there is to be any good news here, it must be found in God alone. It will not be found in man. And that is a, a very important point for us to remember today because it is true for every aspect of our salvation. From beginning to end. Mankind is not basically good. Mankind does not need just a slate wiped clean so we can start over. Mankind does not need just a little boost or some polishing up, or just the last piece to the puzzle in order to be reconciled to God. Mankind, Scripture makes abundantly clear from start to finish, mankind is desperately wicked. To the very core of our being, and it has touched every aspect of us, from the mind, to the will, to the emotions. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And if there is to be any hope for us, it must come from a sovereign and gracious work of God alone. We cannot manufacture eternal hope. 
It has to come from God in God's way. It could never come from us. But as we look and continue to look at the details of of the passage, we will find that is exactly what God is up to. Doing a sovereign work that only He can do in the midst of complete and total darkness. And God indeed begins to work, again, in a thoroughly pagan world, sovereignly in the life of one man according to His sovereign plan. And so after considering the family's pagan roots, we look now at the promised future. And this theme will carry over into chapter 12 and then beyond as God makes His sovereign covenant with Abraham. And so we see the mention of Abram in verse 31. And he is introduced for the first time back in verse 27. Now Abram's listed first among his brothers, but he's not the firstborn. And we've been at this long enough now, you should know that's, that means something, right? Why is he listed first? Because he's the focal point. Because this story is going somewhere and he's a key player in it. And then we read about, moving on, we read about Lot, who is the son of Haran, in verse 31. And we need to understand, the man Haran and the city Haran are not related, okay? So I don't think the city was named after the man. I think it was just a common name, okay, in in that context. Haran was Abram's brother, but he passes away relatively young. And so Lot rises up to become the leader in the home and... The mention of Lot in verse 31 lets us know that he seems to have a closer relationship to Abram and to Terah than the rest of the descendants do because he travels with them when they leave. And then as you read through Genesis, you find out he's also a prominent figure in the story. And then in verse 29, we read of Abram's marriage. And here we meet Sarai, who will later become Sarah. And all of that is setting us up for the grand story in the following chapters. But we read an interesting point about Sarah. Don't pass over this. In verse 30, we're told that she was barren. She had no child. Now, wait a minute. I just told you a few minutes ago that the promise in Genesis 3.15 involves a descendant. And that's why genealogies are so important. And now we're told that with this man that the text is zooming in on and his wife, the genealogy is going to end. Because she can't have kids. Huh. Barrenness among God's people is a common theme throughout the book of Genesis, especially among those who received a promise of children. Did you catch that? It's an impossible promise. And all that begins here. So as we are growing to expect good news of a deliverer, we're once again met with a problem, an impossible problem, a problem that only God can fix. And so as this story is being set up, we're met once again with man's absolute inability and God's absolute sovereignty. It's amazing in Scripture to see God delights to make impossible plans and impossible promises and then fulfill them as only He can. Now in verses 31 and 32, we see Terah, Abram, Lot, and their wives leave Ur. The text says that their plan is to move to Canaan, but on the way, they don't make it to Canaan, they settle in Haran. And here we read that Terah took Abram and and the family as if it was under Terah's 
leadership. But those of us who are familiar with the story think that's a little odd, right? Because as we look at other passages and as we look at the story, uh, we, we see that uh, this is the story of Abram moving out of Ur and that God's call, it, it wasn't Terah's leadership, it was a call of God and the call was to Abram to leave. That's what we read when we get to Genesis 15, 7 or when we get to the book of Nehemiah chapter 9 or when we get to Acts chapter 7 or Hebrews 11. So what's going on here? Here's what I think is going on here. You put all the scriptural records together. I think we can say this. God called Abram to leave Ur. Okay? It's clear the call happened in Ur. God called Abram to leave Ur. Abraham believed God's word and obeyed. And under his influence and in honor of his earthly father, Abram convinces Terah to take the family towards Canaan. And so they travel, and they travel north along the Euphrates River, and they come to the, the city of Haran. But when they arrive in Haran along the way, being a prominent pagan center, and Terah still being an idolater, he's had enough. He decides that's far enough, and they decide to settle down there. And Abram, it appears, honored his father's wishes, and they stayed put. And then upon Terah's death, we will read that he resumes his journey into Canaan, which is the soon-to-be promised land. Now, all of that is important because Abram is the central character here, humanly speaking, right? He's the central character of the narrative beginning in chapter 12. And he is noted. He is the one who is noted for his faith and for his obedience to the call of God in his life to leave his pagan roots and to follow God by faith. And all of that is setting the stage for God's blessing and promise beginning in chapter 12. See, I did it again. I'm getting you prepared for chapter 12, and then I'm going to leave you hanging. So maybe your homework for today should be to go home and read chapter 12. Because in chapter 12, we find the distinguished promise of a family line and of descendants. Wait a minute. Sarah's barren. Uh-huh. Read the story and find out how God works that one out against all natural odds. And we will find a promise of land set apart for God's chosen people. And most of all, we will find the promise of a blessing of a, a deliverer of the Messiah himself who would save his people from their sins. And we will find out that God's promise in chapter 3, verse 15, has survived all of the attacks and all of the resistance of mankind to this point. It is still good. It is going to be fulfilled. And so the gospel, the revelation of the gospel is continuing to take shape. And that's where the passage stops. So, I want us to bring this to a close and I want us to consider something important. In this passage, which is still just a transitional passage, setting us up for what comes next, we can make two crucial observations. Two very important observations. Not just about the world back then, but of the reality of every man's heart, the reality of every person's spiritual state. This contrast of growing darkness and rising hope is an illustration of every person's need for salvation and how that salvation works. And so those two key observations that we make, first of all, we observe the darkness of heart 
for all who are born in sin. We need to understand that. Nobody walked into this room being inherently good. No one was born into this world being inherently good. We are all in this category. Darkness of heart for all who are born in sin. But the second observation we make is the brightness of hope for all who believe in Jesus Christ. All who put their hope in that promised deliverer. So, regarding that darkness of heart, why is it so bad? Why is it a problem? Why is this something that constantly comes up that we need to understand? It's because we were created for a specific reason. And that reason is not just for ourselves. We were created for fellowship with God. We were created to be worshipers of God, to serve Him with our lives. That's Genesis 1 and 2. But though we were created that way, that fellowship has been broken by our sin. That's Genesis 3. And we have become rebels against God. We have been alienated from Him, separated from Him, broken and corrupt to the very core of our being. And that is a problem that we cannot fix on our own. No matter what we do, no matter how good we are compared to everyone else in the world, we cannot fix this problem. We can't even come close. We are hopeless in sin and helpless under God's judgment. And so against that backdrop of the darkness, we can begin to see the brightness of the hope. God himself... God himself, by his great mercy and his grace, has made a way of salvation. And it is through Jesus Christ alone, who died in our place as a substitutionary sacrifice. This is the story of the Old Testament, and it's the story of the New. In our hopeless and helpless state, God initiates the only solution to our deepest problem. That's why we sang earlier, I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your grace. If you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. That's why we sing that, because that is who we are in our natural state. And God continues. He has initiated that solution. He has provided the sacrifice in our place. He has provided the way of salvation and He continues to keep His promise and His plan. That there is deliverance and salvation for all who will come by faith in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. So, what does that mean for us? Simply put, just like Abram, we are called by faith to turn away from our paganism, from our rebellion against God, and follow Him by faith. And we are called to trust His design, and we are called to put our hope in His Savior. And what is so amazing here is that this picture of rising hope in the midst of hopeless darkness is something that is illustrated over and over again in the New Testament. See, this isn't just an Old Testament story. You want to see a beautiful picture of this? Take your Bibles and turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. This is just one of several places we could go to, but perhaps it's the most familiar for most of us. 
And I want us to finish by reading Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Because this describes the spiritual side. This describes the work that God has done for you. This takes the picture of Genesis 11 and shows how it plays out in your life. This describes you. Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Is that your testimony today? Have you been rescued from the darkness and brought into the light of Christ? And Christians, are you living today as one who has been brought out from that darkness into the light of Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have that promise. We thank you, Lord, that we have that assurance that though our sins are many, though we are eternally alienated from you and justly under your judgment on sin, we thank you, Lord, that we have the hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so we pray in these moments that